good morning, um, hello, and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. Today is Wednesday, March the 10th. How are you doing today? Uh, we are looking at just the first two passages uh, from our readings today. Usually I do four readings, but I have the morning off, so I'm going to do two right now on Instagram, and then I'm going to cover the other two sometime this afternoon i'm not sure maybe on the usual channels but this morning wednesday march the 10th we'll be looking at exodus chapter 21 and luke chapter 24. okay so let's look at exodus chapter 21. maybe a good idea if i start by uh, praying heavenly father thank you so much for your word that constantly reminds us of your grace help us to turn to you again and again in repentance, in faith and trust and love through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do this through the reading and the hearing and understanding of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them when you buy a Hebrew slave. Uh-oh, okay. <laughs> he shall serve six years and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing i'm not sure if you can hear it. there's this alarm going off uh in my block every wednesday morning we test the fire alarm so you might hear interesting things happening in the background but yeah every six years he uh, well you shall buy a hebrew slave verse two he'll serve you six years in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing you shall let him go Verse 3, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, Ooh, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. An awl, I'm just going to look that up. I think it's kind of like a hammer or something that you pierce with. A small pointed tool used for piercing holes, especially in leather. So in his ear onto the doorpost and he shall be his um, forever. Verse seven, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things, these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which 
he may flee. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, mm, so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it. He shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, a very violent ox, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. <laughs> owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and a dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his." And that concludes the reading from Exodus chapter 21. Yesterday, we looked at the Ten Commandments, those big headlines. And it was bracketed in terms of worship. This is what it means for you to worship God, to live 
according to God's laws as God's people. You've been saved, therefore obey. Not obey in order to be saved, but having been saved, having been shown grace. Now you live out this grace in obedience to God's word. And this word continues on today in very, very practical, almost economic, and how do you put it, legal terms? You know, these are everyday situations that uh, hopefully aren't uh, normative. You know, someone kills another person, but they will happen. And in these uh, situations, these are law judgments, law pronouncements that articulate fairness, you know, in those judgments that say that therefore there needs to be a restitution. There's always this payment or this kind of fairness in restitution that needs to be made in these um, extreme situations, but also real situations that we'll face in life. So kind of different from yesterday. Yesterday was all worship, but actually that worship informs our daily life and even our daily disputes, our daily realities, you know, dealing with slavery and restitution and even marriage. But let's look at... Um, a few of them. I'm not sure if I'll go through all of them, but let's start from the beginning again because the first bit deals, the whole section deals with slavery and that, that's very, very touchy. You know, obviously slavery today still occurs, um, but thankfully not in the kind of scale that um, was pervasive in the ancient world. Uh, although I wonder, I wonder if today it is more extreme, but more isolated. Now, today to be a slave is such a horrible situation whereby you have just no rights over yourself. You don't even own yourself. Uh, but back, this was thousands of years ago, slavery was rampant. And remember, this was a whole nation of slaves, about 2 million people, every single one of them was owned by an Egyptian, they had Egyptian overlords. And so now um, these laws were given in anticipation that they themselves would own slaves. So how, how ironic is that? But that just reflects the reality of the times. That was how the economy worked. You know, people uh, didn't just employ people. They didn't put a job ad in LinkedIn, but they bought and sold people as they bought and sold, you know, cattle. And, and that that's how it worked. And what the, these laws did was therefore, you know, it worked within that system to ensure that there was fairness and there was an oppression within that kind of economic system. Uh, just in case, you know, you feel offended by this. And I would say, you know, having lived in Asia, in Singapore and Malaysia, the fact that we have, well, maids, maids that come from poorer countries around the region, and you see today uh, the rampant uh, news of maids being abused and uh, their rights you know, being denied. Or even the fact that we have construction workers that we hire on cheap and you know, their lives now are um, almost forfeit you know, because of COVID and stuff. They aren't able to work, but at the same time, they aren't given the freedom in order to uh, because you want to isolate them and you put them. And you know, all these realities reflect that that kind of oppression and those opportunities, not that it always happens, but those opportunities to oppress people who have um, a kind of status that is often seen as lower than us, you know, that we, those kind of advantages are taken off every day. 
and that can happen. And the realities of life is that because of the economy, because of poverty, you know, people sometimes have no choice but to put themselves in those very precarious situations. But that doesn't mean that they should be taken advantage of. So let's look from the beginning again at Exodus chapter 21, what the Bible would say to situations like that. So he says there, now these are the rules, God says to Moses, these are the rules that you shall set before them. So when you buy a Hebrew slave, let me look at the footnote, a Hebrew slave or a servant. So Eved uh, designates a range of social and economic roles. So not just slave, but servant. Uh, he shall serve six years and in the seventh, he shall go out free. So not in perpetuity. So there is this uh, kind of like Sabbath command. So six years he work on the seventh, he shall go out free and for nothing. You know, um, you, he doesn't have to pay you in order to be set free. And already that's kind of revolutionary. You know, if you've, if you've paid for this slave, if this slave is so useful to you, why should you let them go? There is no reason to. Well, God says, I told you so. So they were to obey this rule. And then there's a situation of his marital status. If he comes in single, verse 3, then he shall leave single. But if he comes in married, he shall leave together with his wife. You can't hold his family as collateral. So there's a lot of empathy and there's a lot of protection of the relationships, even of slaves. And if his master, verse 3, verse 4, gives him a wife, and then he has a family, has sons and daughters, then the wife and the children shall be his mas her masters, and he shall go out alone because his master gave him those relationships. And you think, oh, wow, that's just not fair. But then there is an exit clause, verse 5. If the slave says, you know, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, and I know that you're going, oh, I just, I just want to be able to say, I love my children, my wife, I want to redeem them, but you know, he's just, he doesn't have the money to do that. So, so the way in which he's able to continue on in that relationship is with that relationship with his master. He says, I love my master as well. And I understand, I understand if you have problems with that. Then he says, willingly, I will not go out free. And then verse six says, the master shall bring him to God. Interesting, isn't it? You know, it's not, it's not a personal decision but it's kind of almost like a marriage, you know, the way in which you come before God and you declare this promise, this covenant. So you bring this slave before God saying that this slave shall be his slave forever. And so there is this sign as well, the sign of this covenant. He, he punches this hole <laughs> through his ear onto uh, the door or the doorpost using this thing called an owl, this sharp tool. And it's almost like a marriage relationship. So it's a kind of covenant that the master makes with his slave in order to look after him forever. So, so interesting. Let's carry on. You know, it covers so many different situations of relationships between this master and his slave. Verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, meaning he's, he's married her, essentially. He's married this girl, then he shall let her be redeemed. And this is a situation whereby maybe a family does not have the kind of money that was required by the culture to pay for that marriage. You know, oftentimes, uh, I think this still happens even in Asian culture, there's that dowry 
you know, in order to give your daughter in marriage, you pay this dowry. And in place of this dowry or this payment for this marriage, unfortunately, uh, this uh, future wife is given as a servant to this man. And this is, again, worst case scenarios. You know, why is the why is the Bible dealing with this? Is because, you know, these things happen. And in these worst case scenarios, it offers protection, protection to the slave, to the woman, to the weaker party. It says there, you know, he shall let her be redeemed. It means he can't just keep her for himself. It says there, verse eight, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. So it's protecting the slave since he has broken faith with her. It's almost saying you are at fault. You who are the master, you who are the stronger party, you who have broken faith in this marriage covenant, even though that person is a slave, you are married to that person. So you need to, you know, own up to that. Verse nine, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. So imagine if your son, uh, I use the analogy of the maid, if your son marries the maid, that maid should not be a maid anymore. That maid should be your daughter. Don't treat that person anymore as anything less than that relationship that, that she deserves. Verse 10, if he takes another wife for himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, the food, the clothing, and marital rights, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So again, on the one hand, there's this not ideal situation whereby, uh, you know, um, there is this relationship that happens and there is this master over this relationship. But on the other hand, here is God's law stepping in to protect the weaker party in that relationship. If this master leaves that marriage, leaves that covenant and breaks faith, then God says, you are to make restitution. You are to almost pay for the fault that you've made. Uh, verse 12, whoever strikes a man uh, so that he dies shall be put to death. So this is uh, thou shall not murder. Yeah, that's one of the commandments. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place by which he may flee. So this is the person who caused the death of someone else, but it's almost accidentally. It was, he didn't wait for him. He, he wasn't um, intentional, but he caused the harm and the death of the other person. And therefore God says, there's going to be these places where he can run to. And in those places, then he'll face trial. He won't just be killed immediately, but there'll be a fairness and then there'll be an adjudication and he can even wait out his um, his sentence in those cities. And he's going to appoint those cities in the book of Exodus. But verse 14, if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. <laughs> yeah, so that means this is murder. So in murder here, therefore denotes not just the act, but the intent. He This willful attack in order to kill him and this willful cunning. So he's using his brains. How shall I do this? You know, uh, shall I do it in such a way that will cause him pain? So God says that's the kind of thing 
that even my altar will not protect. So taking from my altar, he's pleading, go, oh, you know, I'm a Christian. And oh, I go to this church. And God says, take him away, throw him in the jail. Or in this case, kill him. <laughs> and so here are all these edge cases. So they're meant to be extreme. Hopefully you don't have a lot of these, these situations, but they do happen. And in these extreme situations, God wants to protect the weaker party. And God does not want the stronger party who is wrong, who has broken his law to go off free. So even though he's at this altar, at God's altar, take him away. I'll just speed through the rest. You know, whoever strikes his father and mother shall be put to death. You know, and again, this is the flip side of honoring your father and mother. So these edge cases again, but again, these extreme cases whereby you dishonor your parents and you kill them, you know, he, or, or you strike them and that's a punishable offense. Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So it's not just the person who sells his brother. And you think of Joseph and his brothers, you know, they sold him into slavery. But the people who then buy him as well, they are guilty of this, this act of slavery. Yeah. Verse 17, whoever curses his father and mother shall be put to death. So a very high regard for honoring your parents and therefore disregard is punishable by death. Interesting. Verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, but then the man rises again. <laughs> so, so they fight with one another and then this guy, but then he's okay. Then what this guy is supposed to do, he's supposed to pay for his time and pay for his healing for his hospital bills. And then all the, a lot of uh, striking one another. So a lot of arguments between men, verse 20 and 22 as well. Verse 20 also, the man strikes his slave and then the slave dies. Then that slave needs to be avenged. But if the slave survives, then he's not to be avenged, but he's supposed to pay restitution. So there is still restitution and there it's proportional. You know, if it's death, then, you know, punishable accordingly. But if it doesn't lead to that kind of extreme, then there is still that punishment, but there is, it is commensurate. It is proportional. Verse 22, when a men strive together, all these men fighting with one another, what's going on? But that's, that's what happens. They fight with one another and other people are hurt. And God protects these other people. You know, look, at, it's amazing how all these situations are envisaged in the book of Exodus. So verse 22 it sounds so unlikely. These two men, they're fighting and they hit a pregnant woman. Oh, wow. You know, what's going on? And her children come out. Presumably she goes into labor and she has her baby, but there's no harm. <laughs> the one who hit her shall be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. So there needs to be a restitution, but it is proportional. But if there is harm, verse 23, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And then it's, it's proportionate. So if it's serious, therefore the punishment is serious. But if it isn't, then don't overdo it. That's the idea. You know, that's justice as well. There's an element of mercy and fairness in giving justice to the offender, but also the offended not going beyond what God has prescribed in those situations. Burn for burn, wound for wound, strife for strife. It's worth thinking, 
you know, why is it that God wants us to be fair in the way that we punish? Because I guess that shows how God is very, very fair and very, very merciful, in fact, in the way that he gives out punishment towards our sins. Indeed, God, the God of the Bible is merciful to us in that he does not punish us according to our sins as we deserve, but he shows us mercy. He offers us a way of paying in place of that horrible and maybe painful punishment that we deserve, that there's a restitution, there's a way for us to make amends and indeed to repent and turn back to God and not do that thing again. So I think I'll, I'll stop there because you kind of get the idea, you know, the man strikes the eye and then he shall let the slave go. You know, if he knocks up the tooth, he shall let the slave go. Go. So therefore, you know, the master is given this warning, hey, look out for your slave, for the weaker party. Verse 28, you know, if the ox, you know, this violent ox, you know, kills a person and the person didn't know, then, you know, he shall pay restitution. But if he did, you know, verse 29, the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past. And the owner has been warned, you know, hey, you have a violent ox, <laughs> but he didn't do anything for it. Then just that foreknowledge as well is taken into account. All, this is all in the name of fairness, all in the name of God's law, setting those standards of fairness, but also again, framing the 10 commandments, what it means to worship God in justice, in fairness, in our daily lives especially when we do wrong, <laughs> how do we make restitution? But also when we are wrong, that we do not exact punishment beyond what God has prescribed. Yeah, okay. I think that's the basic principle. And I think that's a very helpful thing to be reminded in a world where, you know, you will do wrong and we are wronged. That there is a price to be paid um, you know, we can't just gloss over injustices that we see in the world, especially when it's the strong taking advantage of the weak. You know, God sees that and God says, you know, that that's not right. You know, that we need, and we need to have that same kind of concern for justice in the world as well. But at the same time, at the same time, there is mercy and there's worship. You know, in these situations whereby there is a wrong, you know, there needs to be mercy. There needs to be a way in which someone can make restitution, can admit guilt, and indeed be almost protected from being wrong themselves in this desire to exact justice, but also framing it again within worship. You know, the Ten Commandments remind us that all this is what it means for us to live in a life that is just, that is fair, but also loving and merciful before God. Okay, so that's Exodus chapter 21. Okay, that, that was kind of long, but that's, that's the point of having these uh, readings split up so that I can take my time and reflect upon them and you know, just, yeah, just think about how it applies to, to me in my life. And hopefully you're doing that in your own Bible reading as well. So our second reading for today is Luke chapter 24. And I think this is the last chapter of Luke's gospel. So yeah, amazing to see how we've walked through this journey with Jesus all the way towards the cross that he resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem to submit to God's will, to die on the cross for our sins. And this is after, this is after he's been raised from the dead. And Luke chapter 24 begins. 
But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found a stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some, of, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find the body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 28, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened 
and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. <laughs> they said to each other, "Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us?" The scriptures, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, "The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon." And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, "Peace to you." But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, "Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet; that it is I myself. Touch me, and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have." And when he had said this. He showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy, and were marveling, he said to them, "Have you anything to eat?" <laughs> they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and ate before them. Then he said to them, "These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that." Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses." Of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. And that's the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke. Really interesting verse, um, verse forty-one. Uh, they disbelieved for joy. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that you are so happy that you can't believe it? It's just too good to be true. And they were marveling, you know, going, "What's going on?" And at that moment, they're going, "What's going on?" Jesus has been risen from the dead. What did Jesus say to them? Verse forty-one: Have you anything to eat? <laughs> He's hungry, and they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Apparently, Jesus loves fish. He has fish as well in the end of John's gospel. So maybe we'll have fish at the heavenly banquet, sushi. But he had broiled fish, so it's not raw fish. And he took it, and it says there he ate it in front of them. <laughs> There's this whole verse at the. End of Luke's gospel. Get this after the resurrection when he appears to them. You could write anything in there. You could take anything out, but Luke decides to add in this one verse dedicated to Jesus eating fish, yum 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 yum, in front of his disciples. <laughs> What does that mean? I don't know. Maybe it means that you know you get hungry in heaven. 
there's food in heaven. That's great news. You know, you can still taste food in heaven. Um, but yeah, it means that Jesus is real. It's him and it's him eating this fish in front of his disciples. But let's start from the beginning again, because it starts with the first day and you know, the symbolic new day of this new age. You know, the, the old creation ended with the seventh day, the last day of rest. But after that day comes this new day, this new creation, this new life that comes through Jesus Christ. And that's why Christians today meet on Sundays. That's why we meet on the first day of the week instead of the seventh day, which traditionally what the Jews would meet uh, was on the seventh day. But no, we meet on the first day to symbolize and to memorialize this first day of the resurrection. First day at early dawn, verse one, you know, these people went to the tomb. These women went to the tomb with the spices they had prepared. And these women were, verse 10, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women, all women, 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 women. Now, I, I got this wrong uh, actually at Bible study just this week because I thought Mary Magdalene was, you know, Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. But no, Mary Magdalene is her own person. So yet another Mary, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, and not even, and there's another Mary as well, Mary, the mother of James. So, you know, you have so many Marys, at least four of them in the Gospels. But this particular Mary and the other Mary and Joanna and the other women were the first people to go to the tomb and the first people to see all these things in verses 2 to 7. Verse 2, they found a stone rolled away. They went in, they did not find Jesus. They were expecting the body. They weren't expecting the stone to be rolled away, but everything they did not expect, they found and therefore, they became witnesses too. Verse 4, while they were perplexed, they're going, what's going on? Behold, two men, two angels, stood by them in dazzling apparel. And the idea of this two-ness, these two individuals, it's an Old Testament symbolism of two witnesses. You need to authenticate any kind of eyewitness account. Uh, this was the days before, you know, recording and video recording. You had people giving evidences in court and you needed two people in order to verify that a particular occurrence actually happened. And so there were two angels at this eyewitness sighting. And so verse five, as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? As if it should have been obvious that, you know, Jesus is not in this place of death. Why are you seeking for a living person in this tomb, in this place where people are dead, are put into this tomb? Jesus obviously won't be here because he is alive. Verse six, he is not here. He has risen. And then he re they remind them of the words that Jesus said. And by the way, these, these reminders happen again and again. It happens here. It happens in a conversation with the two travelers to Emmaus. And it happens again when Jesus says so at the end, when he meets the disciples in, um, in Jerusalem. So three times he reminds them, I said this, I said this, I said this. Remember how he told you, verse 6, while he was still in Galilee, that, verse 7, the Son of Man must be delivered. He must be delivered, he must be crucified, and he must rise again on the third day. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. Um, sorry, I, I was just distracted. I just got a message on WhatsApp. Um, yeah. So he, and it's worth saying that these reminders of Jesus come throughout the gospel 
to prepare us for the resurrection. That means it shouldn't surprise us when we see Jesus in this way, although it's understandable. You know, everyone is. I think I would be as well. But it's meant also to reassure us beyond, as moving past the resurrection, that th these things actually did happen. So now for us, the application for us now, as we look back to the empty tomb, we're not looking forward, we're not trying to make sense of it as people who are just piecing the pieces together, but we have all, as it were, the Lego blocks, all the words of Jesus Christ that remind us that these things have actually happened and we know why they happened because we look back at the words of Jesus Christ. He interprets the meaning of the crucifixion, crucifixion and the resurrection on our behalf. So verse 8, they remembered his words. And so they went to tell the other apostles, the 11 verse 9, and all the rest. But verse 11, these words seemed like an idle tale. They seemed crazy. You know, what, what are you talking about? We don't believe you, in other words. And that's why it says they did not believe them. But even though they didn't believe them, Peter went to check it out himself. Verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb and he stooped because this was it small opening, he had to stoop and he went in and he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling, wondering what was going on. Excuse me. Two things just to point out, all these women and all this marveling, you know, God chose these women and only women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. And the background to this was that women were not admitted as reliable witnesses in the law court in that day. Meaning if you wanted to cook up this kind of story, if you want to make it as convincing as possible, if you want to turn it into a Hollywood movie, you would not in that day cast women as the lead characters, you know, because people immediately go, ah, oh, I can't believe this. But that's why, you know, this was obviously not something that they made up because if you made it up, you wouldn't write it. No one, no, no Hollywood director, no man would write it in this way. But indeed, the only way in which this could have happened, as unlikely as it was, was that it really did happen in this way. Every single gospel account places these so-called unreliable witnesses as the main witnesses of the Gospels. God chose it that way, that these women would be His reliable witnesses. So that's the one thing about the women. But secondly, about Peter marveling. He marveled also, it says that the women marveled at everything, meaning they were still piecing things together, meaning they themselves were skeptics. If you read this and you go, oh, I wonder what's going on, you're not alone. You know, if you're encountering this um, piece of evidence, you're reading this for the first time and you're marveling, that's actually a good sign. That means you're thinking about things. If you have questions and you're maybe not taking it in wholesale and going, okay, maybe I need to think about this a bit more. That's a fantastic reaction to the gospel. In fact, that's what they had as well. And it brought them eventually to faith. It brought them eventually to making the kind of faith that was informed, that was, you know, rational, that they didn't just at the spur of the moment, go, okay, all right, of course. Meaning they weren't gullible. And maybe if you're thinking about this and thinking about it critically with questions and still wondering about this, and I'm not quite so sure, that's a good thing. You're not gullible as well. So let's move on to this encounter with these two people who are very, very skeptical, but still wondering about what's going on. And they'll call um, 
these two travelers, these two people on the way to Emmaus, Emmaus. And we don't know who they are. One of them is named Cleopas. Verse 18, one of them is named Cleopas. We don't know who the other person is. It could be his buddy. It could be his wife. It could be a husband and wife traveling. But as they're walking, Jesus turns up. How, how amazing is that? Of all people to meet, Jesus talks to these two random people walking away from Jerusalem, leaving this, the scene of the crime. And they were talking about the events of the cross. And it says there in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus appears to them, but Jesus prevents them from seeing him. Why? Why? Because I think Jesus wants them to see him in his word first before they see him in the flesh. There's a lesson there. You know, Jesus wants us to see him clearly, convincingly, but in his words. Remember what the angel said? Remember what he said. Remember what he said. He reveals himself most fully. He's just chosen to do it this way. In his word is the way in which he grounds truth, not just in what we perceive, but in what he has said. And so he closes our eyes first. He closes their eyes so they can speak to them. But before he speaks to them, he asks them a question. Jesus, this really, really good Bible study leader, you know, you, you're about to do a Bible study and you have prepared all this material, right? And you appear and, and you're ready to go. But Jesus doesn't just go, blah, you know, everything comes out. But he actually asks them, what are you talking about? This opening question in his Bible study. It's so interesting. He says, verse 17, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And their, their reaction says so much. They haven't yet answered the question. So what are you talking about? Why are you so, so, so excited about this? And they go, they go so sad. Oh, oh, and they're sad. And already that's an answer, that emotional response and that silence. And then one of them, verse 18, turned to Jesus and said, he almost, he, he's so shocked at the question, are you the only person in Jerusalem? Everyone, you know, in Jerusalem at this point in time, there would be 200,000 people because during the Passover, 200,000 people know about what happened. How is it that you're the only in Malaysia, we say the, the only frog underneath the coconut shell, the only person who doesn't seem to know what everyone is talking about, the only thing that's been viral over the past three days, and you don't know what's going on. How can that be? And it shows their surprise, but also their sadness, because they're talking about a tragedy. They obviously have this vested interest in this person called Jesus Christ, but their hopes were dashed. They were let, let down. And Jesus persists, again, like this really skilled Bible study leader. He doesn't go, aha, of course I know, I'm Jesus. You know, this. No, 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 tell me, tell me what things. That's all he says. And he said to them, what things? And so they proceeded to tell him, get this, the gospel. <laughs> because all the elements of the gospel are there, but they tell the gospel in a way such that this good news seems bad. You know, it's interesting. It's possible to actually tell the gospel, not the way the gospel should be told. Did you know that? You could get all the facts correct, but you could speak in such a way that, you know, makes it seem like it sounds bad, that it's let you down, that it's, that it's true, but somehow this truth isn't good. And, and there's something about that element of joy and conviction that you yourself believe in this gospel that makes you someone who is able to tell the gospel the way it should be told. 
And that's not Cleopas. Cleopas, you know, notice everything that he mentions in here. It's so correct and it's so current as well. So it's the, remember, this is the very morning that he's just been raised from the dead. And he starts with Jesus' CV, verse 19, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, a mighty deed and word before God and all the people, you know, he, he was convinced that Jesus was from God. And all the signs and all his words as well authenticated him as a prophet of God. And verse 20, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. And the key word there is the word our. And our leaders did this. We betrayed him. He was from God, but our leaders rejected him. They crucified him. They condemned him to death. But we, verse 21, we hoped that he was the one to save, to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. So he's retelling verses 1 to 12, you know, about Mary and Mary and all the women who saw the empty tomb. He even has all those facts in front of him, all that evidence that he's retelling to Jesus. <laughs> so some of our women amazed them. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, Peter and John, we know that from John's gospel, not just Peter, but both of them, and found it just as the women had said but him they did not see. And so here is someone who has everything, the whole gospel of Luke right in front of him. He could retell it accurately, factually, but it wasn't good. It, it, was, it wasn't good because, well, understandably, they didn't have Jesus. They didn't realize that it was Jesus. But they had the facts, you know, the evidences and the eyewitness accounts from these women Remember women that I just said, you know, they weren't believed. And maybe that's why they didn't believe them. They're just women. And it's so horrible, right? You know, it's facts means it's facts, but you don't believe it because it's coming from persons that you don't want to accept it from. But they have this in front of them, but it makes them all the more sad because they don't believe it, even though it's right in front of them. And that's why, that's why verse 25, Jesus calls them foolish. Oh, you foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now notice this, they're foolish, not because they didn't believe the eyewitness accounts, but they didn't believe all that the Old Testament had been speaking of that were confirmed by the eyewitness accounts. What's Jesus saying? That in order to understand the meaning of the resurrection and the evidences of the resurrection, you need to understand the prophecies of the Old Testament that point forward to the resurrection. You need to understand your Bibles. Hence, he says, all that the prophets had spoken. And he says, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then he does this Bible study with them. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Two things, just to mention here. Jesus was not walking around. Jesus was not walking around with a Bible in his hand. So when Jesus explained everything in the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, he was quoting it from memory and 
from their memory as well. Don't you remember this? Don't you remember that when Moses said this, when the prophets said that? And therefore, here are people who know their Bibles, but still need to understand the gospel. So they know it inside out. But Jesus has to show them and open their eyes to see how all the gospels are pointing towards one thing. And therefore, this brings me to a second point, that all the gospels and all the Old Testament point forward to the fact that Jesus had to die on the cross. Was it not necessary, verse 26, that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter it into his glory? That means it's this necessity that the one who is to be their ruler, the Christ, the King, God's chosen King, has to be the one who is bearing God's people's suffering. He has to suffer. And you see this pattern of suffering, by the way, again and again, in every king, you know, uh, King David, for instance, you know, he was hunted by Saul for years and years and years. And it was that suffering that almost authenticated him as God's chosen person. And then, you know, and that all the scriptures point forward to a greater king like David, in fact, greater than David, who would then suffer a greater suffering. And therefore, all the things that made them sad, the fact that Jesus was crucified, he was rejected, that, you know, people didn't believe in him. They, they didn't give him the honor and the glory that it was due, but they rejected him and they spat in his face. All this, rather than diminishing Jesus' authenticity, actually authenticates him as a Christ. That's what the Bible is saying. That's what the Old Testament is saying. And that's what Jesus is saying. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village. They, they still don't know that it's Jesus who's doing this Bible study with them. They just go, aha, oh, I see, I see, I see. And Jesus, he acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So obviously they built this kind of relationship with Jesus, this stranger. And they say, you know, we're concerned for you, you know, or, or rather they maybe even enjoyed his company, enjoyed the Bible study. You know, those of you who lead Bible studies, do your members enjoy your company? Do they enjoy the Bible study? Have you opened up their eyes to see the goodness of God's word and not just giving up facts and facts and facts? Yeah. The way that Cleopas did, you know, Cleopas was trying to do the same Bible study, but he was just not convinced himself and disinterested in Jesus. But now, you know, that relationship is, has been built. You know, it's amazing. They were concerned for him. Uh, and so they say, stay with us. So he went in, verse 29, Jesus, and he stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and gave it to them. And at that point of time, verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from the sight. <laughs> The moment they can recognize that Jesus, he goes away. And then they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? So both was true. You know, there, there was something in Jesus's word as he spoke to them and in God's word as he taught the Bible to them that they realized that this really was Jesus and go, of course, of course it was him. And they rose that same hour. This was really quite late. And they went back to Jerusalem. They traveled all this way all day. Now they're going back the other way. And they found the 11, verse 33. And they told them, uh, and, and who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 34 is interesting, has appeared to Simon. So there's a particular appearance that Jesus has in store for Simon that I think has already happened. 
And it's meant to reassure Simon that, you know, this really is Jesus and almost as if to, for his benefit as well. And also for the benefit of the other 11 that Simon has been kind of like appointed in a way to bring forward the gospel to the next step. And we see that in the book of Acts. So while they are doing these things, the story continues. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you, shalom in Hebrew. So it's a normal greeting, but there is a weightiness to this peace now. Jesus now pronounces and brings to them this peace. But when he says peace, they get frightened. <laughs> Verse 37, they were startled and they frightened. They thought they saw a ghost. They saw, they saw a spirit. But Jesus says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? So this is fear that comes from ignorance, that comes from doubting all the evidences, all the eyewitness accounts from the women, from Peter, from these two people who have just said that they've saw Jesus and now they're seeing Jesus for themselves. And still you can doubt. You know, it shows again, you know, that process, you know, you can have everything, all these evidence right in front of you, but being able to process it, it's not just a cognitive thing. It's something that God needs to give us by way of his peace, by which he opens up our eyes. Remember, he, these two travelers could not see Jesus, but God opens up our eyes. And how does he do that? He does that in his word, in his word. Uh, verse 39, he says, See, see, my hands and my feet, it is me, touch me. And a spirit or a ghost does not have flesh and bones. You know, it's talking about that resurrected reality. He's a real person. And it actually reminds us that one day we too will be real persons with real bodies in this real heaven that is to come. He's a foreshadowing of that reality. Verse 44, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There's this opening of eyes, opening of hearts and minds to see Jesus, but to see Jesus in the scriptures. That's how Jesus opens our hearts to receive the gospel, by understanding that he had to die, he had to rise again, and he now reigns in heaven, and we know that through the gospel, through the gospel. Yeah, there you go. And so now you are witnesses of these things. And he tells them, you know, that uh, he, so this is the third reminder. It is written that Christ, verse 46, should suffer or must suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead. It's his suffering that enables his resurrection. It's his rejection that enables his exaltation. And the repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This points forward to the book of Acts, whereby the gospel will go forth, beginning from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. And therefore, they are going to be his agents, these witnesses who will bring this good news to all the world. And it says, you are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, pointing forward to the giving of the Holy Spirit, this promise, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power on high. In verse 50, he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. 
So the gospel ends with a preview to Acts. You know, there's going to be this gospel that goes forth to the nations. So you've heard it, you understand it. Now it's your job to speak it to others. That's what, that's what it's saying. But it also ends with this picture of Jesus Christ now reigning. That's, that's the idea. That's the picture of them, him parting from them and going up into heaven. That the crucifixion enabled him to be resurrected. That means his rejection authenticates his exaltation. And now he reigns in heaven. And now we are able to speak of his reality through the gospel to one another. Okay, so that's um, Luke chapter 24. Um, let's end with a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this picture of Jesus right now. Uh, he is reigning in heaven on your right hand, and he has all power, all authority given to him to rule, to judge, and to save. And the reason we know that, uh, at least according to Luke chapter 24, the reason we know that to be absolutely true right now it's not just the hope that we'll see him one day, though we will with our own eyes, we'll see him face to face. But as we look back to the Gospels and we look back to the whole fulfillment of the Old Testament, we see there the cross. Because he died, he was risen. Because he's rejected, he is now exalted. And because he died and came once to bear our sins, he will come again to judge and to rule and to save his people from our sins. We thank you and we praise you for this reality. Help us to have our eyes open and help us to have our hearts and our mouths open so that we speak the same truth, we bear witness to the same truth to the nations. We pray this and we ask for this in Jesus' glorious and wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining me. See you. Bye. Bye.